Today we are uh, continuing our fall preaching series entitled Living the Mission. And the theme of our series is and has been, if we're going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. Very simple, yet very important. In week one, we laid the foundation from the Old Testament. In week two, we looked at Luke chapter four, where Jesus declared what his mission would be. And then in week number three, we started to look at examples of Jesus living that out. And we looked at John four, the woman at the well, and we said that living the mission is centered on loving the broken, the confused, the hurting, those needing forgiveness. In week four, we considered the paralytic in Luke chapter five, and we said living the mission will require coming alongside those who need help finding their way to Jesus. And after a break last week with Thanksgiving weekend, today we're going to be considering the sinful woman in Luke chapter seven, and we will see that living the mission will require us to see people the way Jesus sees them. Now, you may or may not be familiar with someone named Chris Angel, one of the world's most premier illusionists. Now, if you understand illusion, you know that it is presented as real, but we know that there's something happening behind the scenes that are, that's making it appear real, even though it isn't. And one of his most famous things is walking on water. And so I want to share this little clip with you of someone who's explaining how he's able to do that. We just saw the mass magician attempt a feat that has been written about for more than 2,000 years, walking on water. And he did it in a pool surrounded by spectators and his beautiful assistants. So how did the magician create the illusion of walking on water? The secret lies within this industrial-grade clear plexiglass. The plexi is mounted on clear plexiglass legs. The next secret is that the assistants and innocent spectators in the pool have been paid to act like they can't see the plexiglass platforms. The platforms in this illusion have been constructed in various size planks and are supported by the clear legs that reach the bottom of the pool. The platforms are long and narrow and are best seen from low angles. The platforms are hard to see from the sides, so the camera angles are carefully chosen and plotted out to make the trick believable. So now you know how to walk on water. The point is this. Sometimes there is a difference between what we think we are seeing and what we are really seeing. And I believe that becomes evident and the key point in our passage today. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. We're going to read this together. Verses 36 to 39, it says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, 
that she is a sinner. Let's start with the context of our passage. The central character in this story is known as a sinful woman. We're not, we're not told her name. Her identity is communicated by her lifestyle, not her name. And we're told that Simon the Pharisee had invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and Jesus accepted the invitation and went into his house and reclined at the table, which would have been how eating would have been done at that time. The fact that Jesus is invited to Simon the Pharisee's house makes a very strong statement if you understand the culture. Because in this culture, you only invite someone you esteem as an equal to share your table with you. And so Jesus is seen by these religious leaders in this place, Simon specifically, as being on the same level as him for the most part. But also, it's an honor-based culture. And the way you gained more honor, if you wanted to have more honor, then you took honor away from someone else. And so Simon's intention in inviting Jesus is likely to somehow during the dinner discredit him, take honor away from Jesus for himself while sharing this meal in his home. Now, we're told that a woman who had lived a sinful life heard that Jesus was attending a meal, a special dinner, at the Pharisee's house. And so she decided that she would go to the house to see Jesus. Now, the language used in this story, the details that are revealed during the story, make a strong case that this woman is a known prostitute in this town. In New Testament times, prostitutes resided just outside of the cities or towns or villages, and they kept company with the other marginalized people, like beggars or lepers or, or outcasts or even the tanners who, who dealt with killing animals and, and, and working with the hides for leather. It was seen as unclean, so they all lived outside of town, and the, and the prostitutes lived out there with them. People would pass by them on their way into the cities, towns, and villages. And if you were a man from another place, then this was an opportunity for you to avail of the services of a prostitute in an unknown area outside the city limits. That's how she earned her living. She's either seen Jesus' ministry in action personally perhaps she's had some previous contact with him in his teaching and ministry. Or maybe she's just heard about him from someone else. But it becomes evident in the story that the woman is repentant. And that she's pursuing Jesus in her repentance at great risk. Somehow she believes that Jesus is who he said he was. That what he said is true. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to call sinners to repentance. She obviously believes that, and so she wants a fresh start. She wants her sins forgiven. She wants a new beginning. She wants to put her past behind her and be free like we sang about this morning. And so we find her in the house of Simon the Pharisee, desiring forgiveness from Jesus, 
Who can set her free? I'm following the same pattern as we did last week with the, with the paralytic, and there's an obstacle. Now, it may seem unusual that the woman makes an appearance at the dinner, because clearly she's not been invited. The social custom in New Testament times was such that needy people, and needy people knew this, needy people could visit a banquet, could visit a special dinner, and they could receive some of the leftovers or the cast-offs of the meals. It was a way of, of helping those who were poor and those who were beggars and those who were marginalized. However, the woman's arrival didn't really qualify as part of this social custom. In fact, there were a lot of violations to the custom that was happening, that were happening right here in this environment. And these, these violations are potentially hindrances or obstacles to her getting her, her quest granted. First of all, she invaded male space. In New Testament times, when guests were in the home, women didn't eat in the same room as men. The men would recline at the table. The women would be in a side room. They'd be preparing the meal. They'd be serving the meal. They'd be cleaning the meal up afterwards. But to have a woman in the room with men was a major social cultural no-no. Secondly, she's a recognized sinner. She's known by all in the area for her lifestyle. People aren't asking, who is this woman? I wonder who she is. They know who she is. And so this created an awkwardness to her arrival at, Ferris, at, at the Pharisee's home, the fact of her lifestyle. And thirdly, she behaved when she got there in a manner that most in that room would have deemed inappropriate. She began weeping, and her tears flowed down her face and began to drip onto the feet of Jesus. And as her tears flowed onto his feet, she bent down with her hair, and she began to wipe his feet with her hair. A woman's hair in this culture was a symbol of her beauty and also of her honor. It was always worn up as a symbol of morality. But her hair was down, which reinforced her likely profession because prostitutes wore their hair down. To wash a person's feet was considered the ultimate humility. And yet she is wiping his feet with her hair. And then she poured the perfume from the alabaster jar that she had brought onto his feet. This act must have been planned because this is not something that you would randomly have in your possession. I, I actually have my dowry alabaster jar on me at this moment. It's very likely a planned moment. This jar of perfume is worth approximately one year's wages of a common worker. It was intended to be a part of the woman's wedding night when the bride would pour the jar of perfume on the groom's feet as an act of commitment. I'm assuming there's also a practical reason for that, but it is an act of commitment. And then to top it off, she began to kiss his feet. She didn't care what anybody in that room thought of her. She's a sinner, and she knows it. She knows who she is. She knows what she is. But she wants a new life. And she knows that only Jesus can give it to her. Her actions are a demonstration of her repentance. 
her desire for something better, her love for Jesus. It says the Pharisee saw her behavior and he judged her and her behavior and he also judged Jesus and his lack of response. And he's thinking, if he were a prophet, he would know that this is a sinful, vile, unclean woman that's touching his feet. Now, it's important to note that the word saw here, when it says that Simon saw her, it means to observe one's actions, to become aware of what she's doing. He's seeing what she's doing. And he's probably embarrassed that this behavior has taken place in his home at his dinner. Her expression of repentance appears to be an obstacle to her receiving what she came for. Resolution. Jesus immediately came to the woman's defense. Simon was already comparing himself to her. He was watching what she was doing, and he already decided that she is here and he is there. He was spiritual, she is sinful. And so Jesus told the story. He said, Simon, two men owed money to the same man. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 denarii. Neither of them, the man who owed the 500 nor the man who owed the 50, had the money to pay the man back. So the man who was generous and compassionate said, listen, it's okay. I'm going to cancel both debts. And so in telling this story, Jesus said to Simon, which of these two men will love this man more? The one who owed 500 or the one who owed 50? And Simon responded, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, you're correct. And then Jesus asked a very important question. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? The word see here is different than the word that was mentioned previously. The word see here doesn't mean observing in action. It means to study and watch carefully, to discern, to, to feel, to understand, to weigh something out very, very carefully. Simon, do you see this woman? He had seen her previously. He had seen her actions previously, but he didn't really see her. He saw her lifestyle. He saw her sin, but he didn't see her as a person. Now, Jesus is not minimizing the woman's sin here. There's no question. She was a sinful woman. She's a very sinful woman. That's not the point. Jesus pointed out to Simon, listen, Simon, I came into your house. Neither you nor any of your servants provided water for my feet, which was the custom of the day when a guest came into your home. You didn't greet me with a kiss. 
Which is even like when your family comes, you know, your mother walks, mother-in-law walks in the door and you hug and kiss her, right? Because you're supposed to, right? Like who's sitting there waiting? Oh, I can't wait for my mother-in-law to come so I can just wrap my arms around her. Maybe you do. There's no oil for his head. No. These were all expected cultural customs. To neglect these were a blatant disrespect to your guest. And he said, Simon, when I came here, you didn't do any of that. You totally disrespected me. You didn't even give me the basic courtesy of the guest. But look at this woman on the other hand. She washed my feet with her tears. She dried them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. You didn't demonstrate any love. She demonstrated great love. And Jesus goes on to explain that little love is a demonstration of little forgiveness. And great love is a demonstration of significant forgiveness. When, under, when someone understands their need for forgiveness and turns to Jesus, love is expressed. It's not about the amount of one's sin. It's about awareness of one's sin. And Jesus made it clear. It's not her love that saved her. It's not her love that provided her forgiveness. It was her faith in him. Your faith has saved you, he said. But love was the expression of the gratitude that she felt because of the forgiveness that she had received through faith. He said, go in peace. Go in peace. And she left changed by the power of Jesus to save her because she was aware of her sin and she had faith in Jesus to forgive her sins and she accepted that forgiveness and left that room free. So, two things I want to observe from this text in terms of us living the mission that God has called us to live. The first is awareness. Awareness is really important if we're going to live the mission. Self-awareness is going to be important. Others' awareness is going to be important. Because the truth is, becoming a follower of Jesus is not about the extent of one's sinfulness. It's not about how much have we sinned. It's about our awareness of our sin and our need for God's forgiveness in our lives. You know, sometimes it's easier for people who have sinned extensively and obviously and and it's known by a lot of people to turn to Jesus because they're aware of who they are and they're aware of what they are. It's obvious to them and it's obvious to others. They don't have to be convinced. They know it. Sometimes those who consider themselves to be good people Well, they aren't aware of the significance of their sin. And the result is they don't see their need for God's forgiveness. They're really good people. I'm a good person. Why why would I need forgiveness? Well, the Bible makes it clear. We're, We're all sinners. We were born sinful. As beautiful as we are, as nice as the back of our necks smelled when we were born. We're sinful. And on top of that, our actions since we were born have been sinful. The Bible tells us that every single one of us needs God's forgiveness. 
And so just because others are not aware of our sins or just because we may not even be aware of our own sins doesn't mean we're not sinful. And so unless we become aware of our sin and recognize our need for God's forgiveness, we'll never experience God's forgiveness or have a relationship with him through Jesus. Love for Jesus is the best indicator that we are aware of our sinfulness and we've received the forgiveness of God through Jesus. I've often talked with people who are struggling in their spiritual journey and they're desiring to rediscover their their passion that they had, the passion of their faith, their passion for Jesus, the passion in their spirituality, that over time they've drawn cold and and the passion's not there and they just want to get back to where they were at one point in their lives and so they want to know, pastor, what can I do? What steps can I take? What's the formula? What's the recipe to get my spiritual passion back? And I tell them, you can't reignite spiritual passion and a love of Jesus through a formula or a program. Passion for Jesus flows from an awareness of who we were before we found him and what he has done in our lives to forgive us and change us and set us free. Passion and love for Jesus flows from the awareness of his grace in our lives. And if we have a little understanding or awareness of who we are without Jesus, then we won't have love and grace, love for Jesus, and we won't have grace towards others as we live out our lives, because if we are not aware of the grace needed in our own lives, we're certainly not going to make it available to others. But great understanding, a great awareness, a great appreciation of who we, are, we were without Jesus and what he has done to change our lives results in a great love for Jesus and a grace towards others. I love that worship song that says, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. Because when we lose that wonder, we lose our passion and we lose our grace towards others. You can't love Jesus because you're supposed to. You can't love Jesus because someone asked you to. You can't love Jesus because you were taught to. You can't love others because you're supposed to, or you were asked to, or you were taught to. Love flows when we understand what Jesus has done for us and in us, and it just flows. Folks, if we can't show grace to others, it's because we've either not experienced it ourselves or we're not aware of our own need for it. Awareness is critically important. And secondly, seeing. Our passage makes it very clear today that there are two ways to see people. All people. The first is we can see them as Simon saw observing their actions, judging them, rejecting them based on what they have done or what they're currently doing. And when we do this, whether we realize it or not, we are elevating ourselves. We are saying, you are here and we are here. We are elevating ourselves. We see ourselves in those moments when we're looking only at the actions and judging them as spiritually superior. Because the truth is, you can't put other people down 
without lifting yourself up. Every time you criticize someone, every time you say something negative about someone, you are putting them down and raising yourself up. The second thing, way is that we can see them like Jesus did. Looking past their actions and seeing their value. Feeling what they feel. Trying to understand where they are and, and who they are. Weighing our interactions with them carefully. Folks, I believe we're living in a challenging time and that the church and followers of Jesus who desire to faithfully live his mission and be the church that he's called us to be will need to be more like Jesus and focus on the broken person as the priority rather than the issues that they represent. Now, you've heard me say before how I've observed that followers of Jesus in our culture tend to become more fixated on the issues that we disagree with or we believe are a violation of Scripture than we are on the people who are a part of these sinful lifestyles. And so like Jesus, we'll run the risk of being judged by those who think they are spiritually superior when we see past the lifestyle and try to minister to the person. People will look at us like they looked at Jesus and say, you know what, if you were really spiritual, as spiritual as you say you are, you'd know better than to be involved in this. You'd, be, you'd know what kind of person that was. In my personal devotional time this week, I was reading 1 John chapter 2. Man, I've read these words so many times in my lifetime. Did you ever read something, you know, a hundred times and all of a sudden you read it one day and it just kind of, it's like someone hit you with a baseball bat and that's what it felt like as I was reading it. And so this is, I read them before, but for some reason this time these words hit home. This is what it says. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Wow. We can get caught up in a lot of important things, but miss the most important thing. Sound doctrine is important. Lifestyle is important. Strategically living your lives to honor God is important. Leading our church to pursue the vision that we believe God has given us is important. But if all that we are and all that we do does not reflect how Jesus lived, what we're doing is not in him. Jesus elevated people over issues. Jesus elevated the heart over appearances. Jesus elevated the broken. Jesus elevated the marginalized. Jesus elevated the rejected. Jesus elevated the sinful. All over the formality of religion. Why? Because he came to save the people of this world, not condemn them. Because it's the sick that need the doctor, not the well. And so I believe Jesus is asking all of us the same question today. Take the name Simon out of the sentence and put your own name in. And, and I look at it and, and this is what I hear Jesus saying. Shannon, do you, 
do you see this broken woman? Shannon, do you see this broken man? Do you, do you see this desperate child? Shannon, do you see this confused teenager? Do you see the lonely senior? Do you see the struggling senior parent? Single parent, do you see the, Shannon, do you see the hopeless addict that's so, so caught up and, and so much bondage for drugs and alcohol and pornography and gambling? Do you see them? Them. Our oldest daughter lives in Ottawa. She has a little apartment in a building. When you get off the elevator and you look down the hallway, there's her door. When you go down by her door, there's just a little alcove and there's another door. When she moved into the apartment, it would be an understatement to say that a very odd and strange man lived in the apartment. Man in his 20s. Very quickly, you could see that he was had some level of mental illness, clearly was on drugs, and was very likely either oppressed or possessed by demons. He was just a mess. He was a scary mess. But for the most part in the beginning, he was just the weird guy you passed in the hall. But one day he got really, really aggressive. And she's in her apartment and there's a pounding on her door. Keep in mind through this story, daddy's five hours away. There's a pounding on her door, and, and, and he's screaming and pounding at her door, and there's this mid-twenties woman inside her room feeling so vulnerable and scared. And within a couple days, she hears more screaming, and through the peephole of her door, she sees him chasing this, this little couple that are the superintendents in the building, and, and you know, in these cases, it's who can outrun whom, Right? And so the wife was faster and she was in the elevator, but he tripped and fell. And this man was standing over him and, and screaming into his face and intimidating him. And, and they, were, they were just, they were in shock. And Liz is watching all of this unfold on her floor. And so the police came and they took him, but within 24 hours, he's back in there again. Now remember, you know, she's working. She gets off at 11 o'clock at night. It's her shift. She's walking down to her door, but there's an alcove where he lives. She doesn't know he's there. She's just living in terror, just getting into her apartment. And I'm having fantasies back home on how I'm going to fix this. Like I am. I'm being honest. I'm playing it out in my mind. If I was there... Well, last summer, my brother and I went for a visit. That can be a very unwise combination. We were out for dinner, and Liz said, I, I, need, to, I need to mail something. Let's go back to the apartment, and, and I'll get the package. And so my brother said, I'll, I'll stay here at the vehicle. You guys run up. And as we're walking in, this guy walks out. It's really quickly. I'm not paying attention. Liz says, that's him. So I turned and looked, and I saw him walking down the street, and I looked at my brother, and I said, that's him, right? <clears throat> we walked into the room, and this superintendent woman is, is hysterical. She's screaming. She's crying. She can't put sentences together. She's completely out of control. Her husband's behind the door of the apartment. All I can see is his nose and his eyes, and I'm thinking, when she becomes aware of what's happening, you are in so much trouble, buddy. He's hiding behind the door. And so after we calmed her down, we found out that she was in her little office and he came into the office and closed the door behind him. Now, he, she didn't know he was coming to apologize. 
But she had been through so much with him that she thought, he's going to kill me. And she's hysterical. And so Liz is on the phone with the police, but they won't come. It doesn't warrant a, a 911 call, apparently, until he came back. And he walked in the door and was making his way towards the woman, and I stepped in between the two. And I said, you need to step back. And he said, I'm Batman. I said, I don't care if you're Wonder Woman. Step back. And so he stepped back. And it's a crazy room. I got a husband peeking out a door. I got a daughter trying to convince the police it's worthy to come. I got a woman who's in hysterics. I got a guy fixing the air, air, the air conditioning that's saying, just punch him once. That's all it's going to take. And I got my brother saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Because he's in vision. I'm on sabbatical. I'm going to call my board and say, I've been arrested for assault and I'm in prison. So he's trying, it's chaos. And I've dreamed of this moment for months. I played this fantasy out in my mind. He's going to come in, and my daughter's going to feel threatened, and we're going to solve this. And every ounce of my dad body wanted to take care of business. I did. I was on sabbatical. I wasn't spiritual at the time. I wanted to take him out. He looked at me and said, you should be afraid. I said, why should I be afraid? He said, because of the demons. I said, I'm not afraid of demons. He said, you're not afraid of demons. I said, no, I'm not afraid of demons at all. He said, oh, you're one of them. <laughs> and then he said, I've seen those eyes before. And a chill went up my spine. I've seen those eyes before. As we're waiting in the moment, I wanted to hate him. I wanted to punch him. I wanted to inflict the pain on him that he was inflicting and the fear that he was inflicting on everybody else. Every fiber of my being wanted to do it. I'm being totally honest with you. You can vote me out after the service, but I was. You know, I was, I was being dad. Liz told the police, you better come. My dad's between the guy and the woman, and I think this may soon warrant a 911 call. But something happened. And I can only explain it as God. But something happened inside of me as I'm staring down this mentally ill, drug-induced, demon-influenced young man. And all of a sudden I thought, you're somebody's little boy. Somebody brought you into this world. They raised you. Were they bad parents? Did you grow up in a bad environment? Are you the result of neglect and abuse? Or were they wonderful parents and they did everything they could and despite their best efforts, you know, the drugs and mental health took you down this road? Do they know where you are? Do they even know you live here? Are they in contact with you regularly? Have you not spoken in years? And as I'm looking at them, I feel the adrenaline leaving my body. 
And I, I started to see him not in his exterior, not in his behavior, not hearing the words that were coming out of his mouth, but seeing him as a precious, valuable, broken human being. And I thought, this can't be happening. I need to get my anger back. But I didn't. I felt compassionate. I felt broken. Because I believe in that moment, in the midst of my own stupidity, God helped me see him beyond his behavior, beyond his externals, beyond his issues. And just at the moment when I, I, all of a sudden it's soft, the police come and they take him away. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Folks, living the mission will require us to see people the way Jesus sees them. Focusing on people, not issues. Asking ourselves, what can we do to live like Jesus lived? It doesn't matter that I believe all of that stuff and I have that much theological education and I have all of these things on my resume and accomplishments. At the end of the day, what matters is, do I live like Jesus lived? That's it. Our awareness of what Jesus has done will impact how we respond to others who are desperately in need of the saving grace of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about minimizing sin. I'm not talking about turning an eye from sin. I'm not talking about justifying sinful behavior. If you're getting that this morning, you're missing the point. Jesus didn't debate whether she was sinful. She knew she was sinful. He knew she was sinful. They all knew she was sinful. That wasn't the point. He saw past it to a person that was worth dying for, dying for. And I just think somehow in our North American super spirituality where we think we got this all figured out, somewhere along the way, we lost the ability to see people. We see the issues. We judge the sin. But do we see the people? If you're going to live the mission, you've got to see people the way Jesus saw them. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And as Tyler and the worship team leads us this morning, It's not even 11.30. It's the day of modern miracles. We have time. Your kids aren't ready for you yet. Our leaders aren't burnt out enough yet. They have a few more minutes left in them. Let's allow God by His Spirit to speak to our hearts here. Maybe it's someone in your family or your neighbor, or a friend, or someone at work, that all you can see is the outside, and your prayer is, God, by your spirit, let me see past all of this to the heart and value of this person. Is it possible you can reach them? Only the Holy Spirit can do that.
maybe you're here today and there's other needs in your life, your life and we want to pray with you about whatever those are. Whatever your need today. Let's just spend the next few moments and let God do what he wants to do in our hearts and our lives this morning.